All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so yeah, uh, as Daddy was saying, um, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 23 today, and then finish up Joshua chapter 24 next week, Lord willing. And uh, so that's that. Now, uh, those of you that here last week, uh, remember when Daddy was talking about the uh, uh, apportionment or allotment of the land, we're, we're going to do some leftovers first, right? I, I love leftovers. Um, the, the, the kind that stay in the fridge. Uh, but we got some other leftovers to, uh, to do today. So um, when he was uh, going through the allotment of the land, you know, he was talking about the creation in Joshua chapter 20 of these cities of refuge. And uh, Eddie and I were, were talking amongst ourselves, and there was this verse that struck both of us, and um, it uh, was this verse, Joshua chapter 20, verse 6. Now, just the background, if you weren't here, you know, the cities of refuge were cities of Levi, Le Levitical cities, uh, not all of them, but there were a few that were designated uh, cities of refuge, so that if you, uh, if you killed somebody according to Mosaic law, then somebody could kill you, you know, to avenge their their family. But if you accidentally killed someone, then you could flee to one of these cities of refuge, and you would be protected uh, until you could basically have your day in court uh, among the community court that was, uh, or Levitical court that was established. But there was this verse in chapter 6, it says, And he, that is the person that had to flee, shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he's fled. And the phrase that kind of caught our ear was, until the death of the high priest. And so... Um, I was going to research this, but Eddie beat me to it, and uh, shared this uh, really, really nice um, uh, article uh, about it. So I'm going to uh, share some of uh, Eddie's research with you, and uh, he may be tapped to do further research for me in the future, now that I know he's so good at it. Um, so... <laughs> uh, one point that the writer of this article makes, um, or really, I guess two points, was um, that it was very appropriate that these cities of refuge be uh, Levitical cities where the, where the priest was. Um, first of all, um, uh, the, the, the high priest was, was there, you know, so there would have been a priest in charge of that city, so that's good. Um, but then the, the biggest spiritual significance is that as a spiritual leader, uh, the high priest, remember, was the one that would um, present the, the sins of the of the um, people uh, on the Day of Atonement and uh, atone for the sins of the people. And uh, he represented um, the closest thing they had to purity and freedom from sin because, you know, he was the only one that could go behind the veil and into the Holy of Holies. Um, so it made sense that this would fall under his authority. But you, you said the priest was in charge, that, ran the city? Essentially. The, it was, that's where all the, the tribes of Levi, you know, were dispersed among, what, 30 or 40 cities? I forget, 48 cities. 
Uh, six of them were designated to be cities of refuge. They all had good roads going to them. They were easy to get to, and they were evenly distributed. I think there were three on each side of the river um, so that, I mean, they were specifically designated to be appropriate for people to go to. Um, the, the writer of this article makes some uh, spiritual applications of, of um, uh, which I, I think Daddy referred to, but um, uh, the, the point being that, uh, I won't go into all of it, but just as, just as the person who realized his transgression and fleed to the city of refuge and was protected there, um, covered, you might say, by the authority of the high priest uh, until that priest's death. Um, in the same way, when we sin and we flee to Jesus, we are protected by him until his death, which means we're protected, right? Because he's not going to die uh, in, in the eternal sense. Um, and you could take it a little further because when the high priest... Um, finished his authority, you might say. His authority lapsed at his death. So when he finished his authority, then that person was then free to leave the city and to go wherever he wanted. Well, when our high priest finishes his work, then we'll be free to be in, with him in heaven and to be in the city that was originally designed for us. Um, before the creation of the world. So I thought that was a pretty cool application. It's, a, it's quite a nice article there, and uh, maybe on one of our emails we can include a link uh, to that. So uh, thank you, Eddie. I thought that was, I thought that was awesome. Thanks, All right, so chapter 23. Um, let's, uh, let's jump on in here. So uh, verse 1, it says, A long time afterward... When the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, um, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and offices, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. <laughs> so there we go. Um, a long time afterward. So by the time uh, Joshua had... had gotten to this point in his life, they estimate that he was maybe around 90 um, when he finished the conquest of Canaan, so to speak, or at least his part of it. And we'll find out later that well advanced in years means 110. All right, He, he died when he was 110. So when it says a long time afterwards, we're talking about 20 years um, when he's been able to live in the this, this city um, Timnath Sarah, which was his city that he was given, um, he's been there 20 years. Uh, so people have settled, and you know that's basically half a generation. And um, now he's realizing his his time is near. So he's he's calling them together, and um, in Joshua 24. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel. A little bit more specific, that's verse 1 there. And it seems that who come around Joshua came. Probably as many people as could make the trip came. Whereas in verse 23, it seems that, I mean in chapter 23, it seems that it's especially focused on the leadership. 
All right. So, and uh, we don't know a hundred percent, but it seems that it's mostly this message to the leadership in chapter 23 and to the big group, uh, as much of the population as, as could you could amass uh, for chapter 24. All right, so it says uh, he summoned uh, these folks, and it, he says uh, in verse 3, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So, when we look at what happens in this chapter, um, we're going to do uh, kind of the old uh, preacher thing. We're going to have not the three R's, but the four R's. So the first one was recognizing that there was transition coming. The transition is at hand. So verses 1 and 2, he's recognizing, I'm getting old. My time is done. I need to, I need to wrap things up, so to speak. The second R, verses 3 through 5, is remembering God's blessings. Remembering God's blessings. Pick up in verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. The important verse here, I think, is... The latter part of verse 3, it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. We remember from the rest of Joshua when, when they tried to do it on their own strength. It didn't go well. But it's the Lord that has got us to this point. It's the Lord that has fought for you. Let's remember how this played out. The other thing I want you to remember is you have an inheritance that has yet to be claimed. There are... There are um, nations who have been isolated and cut off that have not yet been fully conquered. So there's work to be done. So um, let's remember where we are. Verses 6 through 11, <clears throat> I've summarized saying that here he is reminding them of the commandments. Reminding them. Therefore, phrase, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. The assumption here is that the relationship with those people that were left was not going to be one of neutrality. 
This was not going to be in a relationship where you say, oh, well, we're just all going to get along. Because he knew there's going to be people wanting to trade with each other and sealing a deal by swearing to this God or that God. And next thing you know, you're swearing to their God just because you want to make a business deal with a bunch of camels or whatever. He knew that there would be some intermingling here and that it was going to be the death of them. Here we have a hint of, uh, you might say, the, the worldly wisdom about what happens with compromise. A little bit later we're going to hear that there's not just natural consequences, but there's godly consequences when there's compromise. But the point here is that he knew this was not going to be um, a peaceful, long-lasting relationship. Uh, I have to pick a side. Now we could stop there and, and, and uh, a good preacher could probably go off for 20 or 30 minutes right there because that's kind of where we are now, right? I mean, he, w Hebrews speaks of us as aliens. So the more comfortable we are here, the less aliens we are. And the more likely we are to be like these folks there in Canaan who are getting comfortable with their neighbors. Let's pick up in verse 12. And here I'm, I'm calling this reviewing the consequences. For if you turn your back, or I'm sorry, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Where are you, Art? This is Joshua chapter 23, verse 12. 23. Okay. Did I mess people up? They shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now, several thousand years later, we have our friend Sam a few yards away who is talking about what's happening, right? He's talking about current events. And if the recording doesn't work, we're going to make Merritt get up here next week and give a report. <laughs> She doesn't know that. <laughs> a whip on your sides. That just struck me. And this is totally a stretch, okay? This is just accidental language. But you got Israel in the middle. And you got the Gaza Strip on one side and the West Bank on the other side. And if you don't think that there's whipping going on, that there's pain being felt by Israel, I mean, that... That just struck me. 
And now he's going to amp it up. He's going to say it again. And he's going to drive home the point that says, you know, folks, I'm wrapping up here. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing my job. And you need to know what I'm telling you. This is serious. It is, this, I'm, I'm, this is all I got. Let me say it again. Verse 14. And now, I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your heart and souls, all of you, that not one word of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised all evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So there's several consequences that can result from our misdeeds, right? We can receive the natural consequences of things. We can receive the consequence of God taking his hand of blessing away, which he refers to. He's not going to He's not going to go before you anymore. He's not going to help you drive them out anymore. He's taking that hand of blessing and authority away. But then it can get worse. Instead of, instead of the natural consequences of things, instead of taking away the blessing, now you have the action of negative consequences that God will apply to the situation. And that's this latter part. So all three things apply here. All three things apply. So if you don't think he's serious, then you're not really paying attention. So um, as we look at this, um, it calls to mind, there's one kind of a, if you pull back and look at the, the whole of Scripture, there's something that happens here that actually is kind of a theme of Scripture. And that is the, the farewell address, the farewell speech. Um, can you think of some memorable farewell speeches in Scripture? Joseph. Joseph had a farewell speech. Um, in fact, uh, we're not too far from that one. If you want to flip to Deuteronomy 50, it's the last chapter. I'm sorry, Genesis 50. It's the last chapter. And uh, you'll see uh, kind of a, a similar construct. It's a shorter one. It's verse 22. It's a latter couple of verses. It says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Look how long he lived. Joseph lived 110 years. So there's your little trivia for the day. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. And then, of course, uh, he, it says they embalmed him, put in a coffin in Egypt. And we, then we know that, that Joshua um, goes back for those bones. We'll see that next week. So a nice connection there. Um, any other farewell speeches that you remember? Jesus had a great one. Um, several times as he prepared the, the um, disciples. Um, and uh, you, could, you could basically count the latter part of John 13 all the way to 16 or 17. Those several chapters in John is essentially a large farewell address. In fact, I'm going to quote part of that in a bit. Another one. Okay. Exactly. Uh, I did not plant my parents up here. Just, uh, godly parents, that's pretty cool. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, Paul says, and we know 2 Timothy was his last book that he wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to truth, be sober-minded, and so forth. Verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he goes on. Um, great farewell address the the challenge uh, here um, where's Jesus um, is the the challenge that we've had throughout Joshua and uh, we've talked about this concept of Christ now I um, we, we talked about this you know the type of Christ and I um, I want to give a, a little just a little justification for me using that term okay because Paul uses it, and I figure if it's good enough for Paul, right? Um, in Romans 5, um, he talks about comparing Adam being a type of Christ. And he talks about in verse 12 of Romans 5, sin came in the world through one man, death through sin, and so forth. In verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, whose sinning was not, like the transgression of Adam, was a type of the one to come. So this is Romans 5.14, so you can kind of study that on your own. Um, but uh, in this type of Christ, we have Joshua being the, um, in, there's the type, and there's the, it sounds weird, I'll grant you that, the anti-type is the real deal. Okay, so the anti-type is just, he's the real deal. The type is Joshua. Um, so think about it this way. Um, Joshua was able to recognize the work that God had done, but he recognized that there was more to do, right? There was all this stuff that had yet to be conquered. He realized that the last battle 
had yet to be fought. It wasn't finished. So what he needed to do was to set the stage for what was going to happen next. Well, Jesus did the same thing, right? As he was getting ready, and, and John, as he was preparing his disciples, he knew there was work that was left to be done. Um, what he was going to do was really the end of the beginning. And he set the stage for just the most miraculous season of God's grace that we've enjoyed these last 2,000 plus years where we're seeing kind of the rest of the story. And then, of course, there's still a, quite a big battle yet to come where it's all going to be wonderful um, afterwards. Um, so here we have Yahshua, uh, Jesus uh, of the New Testament, and Joshua uh, of the Old Testament, both getting ready to leave and preparing uh, for what they had yet to do. So, uh, again, we see, we see Jesus in the reflection there of Joshua. So, a couple of, um, a couple of things to wrap up. Um, verse, uh, chapters 23 and 24, I think you could talk about what does it mean to really finish well? And you might call this finishing well or finishing strong. I think those are the things that came to mind. So I got to think, if we look at Joshua, what does it take to finish well? Um, if you look at our kind of how we broke things down, I put that it takes recognition of what you've done. This takes honesty, right? It's like, yep, there was some victories there. There was some mess-ups there. Uh, I made some mistakes. It takes honesty to recognize truly what you've done. It also takes recognition of what there is left to do. So that means you have to have some vision. That means you have to know what the next thing is or be aware of what there is yet to do. So it's not enough to just look back over your life and say, yeah, here's some good times, here's some bad times, but you also have to be able to look ahead and say, you know, if I was going to be around, here's where I would be heading next, or here's where I think you should head next. The third thing, it says, uh, I put that, you have to have some sort of preparation for those that are coming after you. And this takes leadership. This takes leadership not just when you're wrapping up, but it takes leadership that whole other time. I guarantee you those 20 years that he was there in peace, he wasn't just twiddling his thumbs. He was administering that place, right? Uh, I guarantee you there were squabbles. I guarantee um, land disputes to work through and uh, deals that went sour and you know, people that were coming to him for advice and his junior leadership, all these people that he called together were probably in constant communication with him. He didn't just wait. He was preparing for what was to come afterwards. Um, and, and in a way, as, as we all try to finish well, um, I think we have to keep in mind that we're not going to be the final chapter. 
no matter what we do, how long we live, our best is just to throw a few stepping stones out in the right direction so it's a little easier for those people that are going to come after us. Um, a couple other things. Um, one commentator said something that I thought was, was really worth uh, repeating. As he was talking about these first few verses of chapter 23 where the first thing Joshua did was to remind them of God's blessings and remind them of, of what they had conquered. And he says it this way. He says, cause he had said, well, naturally, that's what Joshua did. And he said, he said, I said that Joshua naturally reminded the people of these things. He said, but also, although that is true in one sense, that it's natural that Joshua should have spoken of the Lord's past acts on Israel's behalf, it's also unnatural in that we do not naturally think this way ourselves. On the contrary, we separate ourselves from God's actions. Listen to this. He says, we separate ourselves from what God has done by making faith a matter of subjective feelings, as if what matters is how we feel about religion rather than knowing and acting on what God has done. We don't generally admit this, of course, and we believe that God has done great acts of redemption for us in the past, but often this becomes less important to us than how we feel now. And we begin to act on our feelings rather than upon what we know of God and God's ways. Joshua did not want the people of Israel to do that. I think that's really true, right? I mean, we're, we really tend to focus on our feelings instead of acknowledging the truth. And that's something I think we all battle. So, in many ways, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? Um, I want to make a little little comment. Um, because of um, his preaching style and because of the, the fact that I, I think he has really made a lot of very orthodox, time-tested truths of Scripture real to his people, you guys have heard me speak well of Pastor Mark Driscoll from Marshall Church out in Seattle, and we've shown clips of him. And the things that I've drawn from him have been very good for me. And I, I think that he's had a lot of truth that he's dispensed. Um, he has this saying when he talks about marriage. He says, the most important day of your marriage is not the first day. It's not the wedding. He says, the most important day of your marriage is the last day. What are you doing? What are you gonna, where are you going to be in your marriage on that last day? Are you going to be by your spouse's side? Are you going to, you know, those sorts of questions. And I think that's great. And, and I know many of you have finished very well in that regard. But it made me think there's this doodle going around. You guys may have seen this. Showing what success looks like. Have you seen this? That most people think of success and they think of someone here and that this is what, right? This person has really done well. The doodle is that the 
that this is what usually success looks like. That this is a reality. That very few people is it always upward and onward. Most of us want some do-overs. Right? Most of us are in here and for the Christian with God's help, there's redemption, there's confession, there's repentance, there's recovery, there's the promised land, but here is just wilderness and Egypt and and AI and all the other bad stuff that we tend to do that's outside of God's plan for us. I mentioned Pastor Mark this morning because for a long time it looked like he was here. He's right here right now. And I actually want you to pray for him today. His sermons, his books have been great. But it turns out for his congregation, especially his elder leadership that was supposed to be close to him, holding him accountable, he's been a bully. And it's starting to come out where he has fallen prey to some of the success that he's had. He's abused his power. He's made some mistakes. I don't know what he's going to say, but a few hours from now, Pacific time, he's going to be speaking to his church in Seattle. My hope is that he gets back on this road and that he recognizes some things that he's done wrong and that he gets on the right path. Um, there's a church planting network called the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. It's planted over 500 churches over the past 10 years. He was one of the co-founders of it. Matt Chandler, another very respected pastor, us, um, has been the leader of that network for the last few years. Um, the board of Acts 29 actually removed all of the Mars Hills churches from their membership this past week because there's some authority things going on. People who have, out of graciousness, kept their mouth shut are coming forward now to kind of do some church discipline for Pastor Mark. And so I think it'll be a true test of his um, faith as to whether or not he's going to do the right thing. So, so pray for him. Um, I am all about second chances. That's the best thing about being a Christian. Right? Oh my gosh. Truly, oh my God. Not in a slang way. But oh my God who made a way for the second chance. Who made a way for the city of refuge. For the high priest that was going to cover everything. Who knew in advance that we were going to need it. I pray that we all can finish strong, recognizing the past and looking forward to the future, but doing it God's way. Lord, I think our country is in that, that place right there, too. Our nation's got to go.